Father, we're grateful for the lovely day that we've enjoyed. We thank you for the calling to serve you in this world and for your uh, care for us as we do so and for making us fruitful in that. We thank you as the workday comes to a close. We can gather and study together more of your word under the tutelage of Dr. Ferguson, and we pray that it would be fruitful, um, that we would grow in love for Christ and faithfulness in the way of life that he's called us to. We pray especially tonight with the difficult topic that we take up, that you help us to be discerning and thoughtful, uh, that our discussion would be helpful one to another, and uh, that you would cause us to be people of courage uh, and not those who shrink back. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we have um, a uh, section of John 15, verses 18 through 27, that uh, Dr. Ferguson takes up under the title, um, Hated But Helped. And unfolding that, uh, of course, the terms refer to the condition of um, Christ first and then the disciples. Um, and to unfold that twofold, that two-part topic, uh, he's going to give an explanation of it. He's going to unmask the source of the hatred and the help. And then he's going to show particularly first principles that are used to help uh, prepare um, believers for uh, the hatred of the world and then finally the important significance of that for Christian witness so let me read our text John 15 18 to 27 if the world hates you know that it has hated me before it hated you if you were of the world the world would love you as its own but because you are not of the world But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you kept my word, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have not been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the world, the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, I, excuse me, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and he will also bear witness, and you will also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. All right, there's our text. Um, Dr. Ferguson begins with this uh, lovely um, uh, bit about uh, the great British philosopher, British philosopher Alfred North Whitehead, uh, that he said that all of uh, Western philosophy is basically a footnote on te- Plato, uh, that, that he figured that Plato had such a commanding and uh, directing influence on philosophy that it was all just sort of extrapolations from where it first began. And he uses that as a place to uh, leave off um, because um, he wants to say that uh, it's uh, safe to say that in a sense the whole of the Bible are a series of footnotes on Genesis 3.15 that the whole story is the unfolding of uh, the curse against the serpent and the promise in that curse uh, to um, Eve. Um, And that um, this warfare between uh, the seed of the serpent and the the seed of the woman is uh, the defining uh, conflict, uh, the the defining drama 
uh, of the whole of uh, not only the Old Testament, but uh, the New Testament opens with this con- conflict continuing and will carry on until um, Christ returns again. Uh, and all of these conflicts of their various characters, he says, are n- not isolated inst- incidents. They're not serendipitous. They're part of a series of episodes um, uh, with this basic conflict uh, being unfolded. Uh, the outcome belongs to the return of Christ, but he says that, in fact, uh, a powerful moment in this conflict is found in the upper room, uh, both with the revelation of the betrayal of Judas um, and uh, the um, uh, and, and various other things that showed that um, Jesus's time had come. Uh, Dr. Ferguson refers to the book of signs. Recall that that's John's gospel, part one. That's chapter one um, through chapter 12, 50, the book of signs. And some Greeks asked to see Jesus, and this seemed to be a signal to him uh, that the time that the gospel would break out of its confinements in Israel uh, and go out to the Gentile world had arrived. Um, So great promise and light is coming, and at the same time, uh, the darkness is coming. Um, And that says to Dr. Ferguson that, in fact, those curious words we saw in John 14, 31, rise and let us go for here, were not simply uh, a commonplace about let's move the show here, but rather the military sense that that can have, it does have, um, and that um, it was essentially let's go forward to meet the enemy. Um, the... Um, And Christ speaks directly to the disciples about uh, how, because they are caught up in him, they will be, at, in their experience, the center of the conflict. They will be hated. This is on page 122 at the top. Uh, And yet, because they belong to him, they will be helped. They'll have resources to deal with that hatred. Um, so that's the theme. The disciples are united to Christ as branches to the vine, as we saw. And so because of that, uh, they will have extraordinary resources uh, to help them in their calling. Uh, but at the same time, they will experience, just as Jesus experienced, profound um, opposition. And in the second full paragraph on 122, Dr. Ferguson insists that this is a fundamental principle of discipleship. The Christian who does not anticipate uh, opposition doesn't yet understand the nature of the Christian life. So this is characteristic of what it means to be a Christian. Now, there's a caveat that follows. Uh, Not all um, ill treatment that Christians suffer uh, are because of uh, this conflict. Uh, that in fact Christians can be goofy and foolish and thoughtless and ill-willed and uh, and bring upon their own heads um, unhappiness. Um, the um, P- Peter talks in particular about not suffering because you've done ill, but be- suffering because you've done right. Um, and so uh, there there needs to be a careful discernment here. But that being said. Um, the principle Jesus is laying out is if the world hates you, um, the uh, and of course, Dr. Packer insisted that doesn't mean if it happens, but the grammar in that place uh, means for all intents and purposes, since you will be hated, here's what takes place. It's that kind of a conditional. Uh, it is inevitable. Inevitable that the bitter hatred of the serpent for the seed will spill over onto his disciples. Let me pause there before we go on to the uh, John's vision at Patmos. Any reflections, comments, questions about what's been said so far?
Um, it might be a distraction, um, and tell me if it is, but over the course of the history since Jesus went to be in heaven, it does seem like um, there has been a lot of hatred be between Christians. Um, and in this day and age, we see that again with... Get, get, get to your point, because if I'm understanding you, I think I'm, I'm going to be taking it up later. What in specific? Oh, okay. All right. I'll just wait then. Um, and um, just there's something funny with your mic again, where it's chopping up some of your words, and at the end of your sentences, it's low. And uh, I don't know what it is and whether you can pull your computer closer to you or something, but um, I... It's just the ends of your sentences are difficult to understand or hear. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I haven't a clue as to what to do. Um, hmm. It might be when you put your head down. You know, you're, you're reading and then you're talking. Um, and I don't know, just trying to figure it out. All right, I won't read anymore. <laughs> All right. Um, well, we'll just see how it goes. I don't know what to say. Um, I have so, a question, Dave. Yes. Um, the, the sentence that you read about this, this fundamental principle of discipleship, the Christian who does not anticipate opposition, I wondered if you could say a few words about how how wide that spectrum of opposition is. What, what, what types of opposition... Is, is meant here, or should Christians expect to face, uh, you know, from the very minute to the to the very blatant, something that or something that's very blatant to something that is more insidious? How how, how wide is that spectrum of of opposition that that Christians should expect? Um, I, I also think I'm going to address that. So if I okay. can put okay. you off, but be sure and come back to it. Yeah. And and let me. Um, say, but just as a first shot at it, that um, Jesus is teaching that there's an inherent disposition in everyone who belongs to one or the other of these lines to have this kind of implacable opposition. But it'll only be the circumstances of life that will allow for more or less an expression of that implacable opposition. So he's saying this is a hidden uh, disposition that everybody has, um, but then it's going to be more or less according to circumstances that will uh, be the occasion for the more vigorous expression or a more restrained expression. I, I think that's the overarching principle here. But if, if I'm, I hope to address it more in just a minute. Um, so let's turn to Patmos. Um, the, um, we have the serpent of Ch Genesis 3. He says, uh, growing into a great red dragon, and you have this striking language from Revelation 12, 1 to 17. Um about this terrible conflict between the woman who's about to have a baby and uh, the dragon, the, the, she being preserved and her child, uh, the dragon being thrown down. And uh, at the bottom of 124, um, Dr. Packer says that, I mean, Dr. Ferguson says that uh, he thinks this is to some degree uh, the movie, ver or excuse me, it's the top of 125, the, the movie version of what Jesus is saying in the upper room. Um, he notes in passing that in biblical times, people didn't think of dragons the way we do in our uh, modern Western mythologies, but they thought of them more as a giant snake. Uh, and then he brings up the Komodo dragons in Indonesia. I don't know whether you've ever seen those, but uh, that would curl your hair. Um but in any case, um, the um, uh, Christ has overcome the devil 
But defeated though he is, uh, he continues to fight until the very end in Genesis 20.10 uh, when he's thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur and Eden is restored and glorified in chapters 21 and 22. So the serpent is powerless to destroy Christ, but in his fury, he's seeking to destroy Christ's church. That's the dynamic. That's the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Um, and uh, Satan is an extraordinarily uh, able creature, uses deception and lies, uh, uh, is full of accusations. Um, and one of the problems we have is we tend to look at the world and its conflicts entirely from the point of view of what's visible. And the Bible regularly wants us to understand that there's an invisible element to the experience of our lives that belongs to a world unlike our own where this conflict is being uh, worked out and um, that we have an enemy um, who has a hand in the things that are destructive in our experience and the point is not that there's anything we can do about that per se. We can't enter into, uh, we, we don't have any special incantations. We, we can't even see that world. The point of the knowledge, though, is to make us ready to face what that means in our experience. Um, the uh, He has this... <laughs> just shocking illustration uh, from a website for babies' names on 126, uh, the name Diabolos, and, uh, which is just a form of the word devil, and uh, how devilish could be uh, seen to be warm and cheerful, sweet yet mesmerizing, full of character and flair. Uh, that, that is not what the devil is about. Um, and it is nevertheless the case, and that kind of language, I think, reminded Dr. Ferguson of Second Corinthians 11, uh, 14, where we hear that the devil can appear as an angel of light, and that's part of his deceptive character. Um, so... Um, he wants them to take this reality seriously. Uh, and so he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. Um, the disciples experienced this uh, firsthand they saw the enormous blessing of the outpouring of the Spirit and the power of their ministry. And at the same time, they saw uh, that um, they were going to be hated and persecuted so that the pattern of the early church's life was one of blessing and beating. Uh, that's a wonderfully alliterative way of summing that up. And in fact, there tended to be a relationship between the gospel bearing fruit and the opposition aroused um, to its fruitfulness. Um, Dr. Ferguson sees a a pattern in the early part of Acts. First, intimidation in the form of persecution. Then, if that doesn't work, Satan comes within and stirs up those who are counterfeit Christians, who want to be a part of the community because they're ambitious, seeking a reputation, and thus the instance of Ananias and Sapphira. But if that, that, another device of the evil one, is to corrupt the church's ministry, particularly the church's ministry in outward things, and that seems to be the point of Acts chapter 6, where the um, the um, Hebrew widows were not being cared, or the, the uh, widows who were from outside of it, uh, Jerusalem were not being cared for 
as carefully as the local widows, and it was causing dissension in the church. And and there are other things could be identified, but the point is that those three things not having been properly successful, he goes back to the first and the intimidation and persecution that leads to uh, the the destruction of uh, uh, Stephen and out of that growing the extraordinary circumstance of the conversion of the apostle uh, Paul. Um, So his point here, forearmed is for, excuse me, forewarned is forearmed. We dare not be um, outwitted by this creature. Um, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, we are not ignorant of his designs. Uh, and so the Christian needs to live in such a way uh, to be discerning, thoughtful, engaged, knowing that he's not going to be immune from this opposition as long as he is in this world. Um, And it's because we're not properly of this world. Uh, And Jesus is simply wanting his disciples to understand who they are, their new identity in him. Uh, They are, in the striking language of some of the fathers, a new race or a third race. Um, And thus welcomed not by Gentile or Jew. Um, The world uh, condemns them, but at the same time, and here's the the hatred and help, uh, they are the ones who turn the world upside down, Acts 17.6. And I like the nice refinement that Dr. Ferguson makes of that saying, uh, more accurately, the apostles turned the world right way up. the, uh, but uh, Jesus' um, kindness, his mercy, and yet his uh, straightforward speech with respect to good and evil, right and wrong, uh, made folks in opposition to the gospel uh, guilty, and their hostility was fueled by that guilt. Uh, they felt condemned uh, by his presence. And since the apostles are to carry that same message, uh, they can expect the same kind of treatment. Um, And the disciples understanding that realized that such persecution was actually, in an odd way, a sign of God's favor, that God was blessing them to be like Christ, to speak like Christ, and therefore that being seen brought the approbation, uh, brought the condemnation of Christ uh, upon them. And yet that beautiful, on 129, that beautiful text in Acts chapter 5, um, the apostles called before the council, um, they were told not to preach, but the outcome of the council's deliberations was, uh, let's just try and get rid of them. Uh, and so they were beaten and charged not to, to speak in the name of Jesus uh, and then to let them go. And verse 41, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. That is such a striking uh, sensibility. And clearly, uh, The only people who could have that sensibility were people who knew the help of the Holy Spirit. So there's both um, hatred and help help, uh, counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. So um, um, uh, Dr. Ferguson wants us to pay close attention to this syllogism. Um, The premise... Servant's not greater than his master. Jesus is the master. They persecute me. The conclusion, QED, therefore, they will persecute you. Kate. It it seems clear that he's talking about the outside world, but is it also possible that the world, the flesh and the devil in us 
does the same thing? Um, well, if we're in Christ, we're no longer of the world. So we're still the, fighting the, the battle against sin and Satan, and, right? Yeah, but we're on the right team. <laughs> do, do you see what I'm saying? We're fighting against sin. The world's fighting against righteousness. We're fighting against malice and hatred. Uh, the world is fighting against mercy and grace. Does that... I guess what I'm asking is, can the battle be also inward as well as outward? Uh, not, not this particular particular battle um, well except well again I um, hmm. tell you what I've got a few more things to say on this let me see if it clears up the matter at all and then when I get finished with this segment come back to me okay I thought it would be a good place here to to reflect a little further on this, given Dr. Ferguson's challenge to reflect deeply on the syllogism. And so I wanted to make a couple of other observations. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Now, we need to be clear on who the they is. Clearly, the they are the non-chosen of verse 19. But if we go further, we have to remember when we are asking who the they is, that at the beginning of the passage, Jesus is speaking of the world's hatred. And the world in John's gospel is the created moral order in active rebellion against God. That's a definition from D.A. Carson's wonderful um, uh, commentary on the gospel of John. But notice this, the they here in particular must be the Jews who reject Jesus. You can see this in verse 22, verse 25, in chapter 16 at verse 2. In rejecting Christ, they are now identified with the world. And this is the shocking thing about what Jesus is saying that the Israel who rejects Jesus has rejected the Father, and having rejected the Father, they are now numbered among the world in opposition to those who are appointed by Jesus to be numbered among his people. Here is the, disjunct the disjunctive Jesus, the great either-or. Here is an unyielding reality the world system and the message of Jesus are utterly at odds with one another. So how is this hatred realized in the world? Well, sometimes it's extraordinarily violent. John 16, 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming whenever whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. Now, to be put out of the assembly of God's people, this was a remedy that God gave for the good of his people. That if someone was so rejecting the life of that community and the father who were over them, that they needed to be put out. But it was a terrible judgment against that person. But here, it's being so horribly abused. What was meant for the protection and purification of the church is now used for its harm. They'll put these that belong to Christ out of the synagogues. They'll think they're serving God by killing them. And, of course, that was ju just what the uh, apostles experienced. Um, Paul five times received 39 lashes. Um, that's in 2 Corinthians 11.24. According to the scholars, receiving 39 lashes is a distinctive punishment of the synagogue authorities. 
And this is a wholesome lesson for us who are the heirs of the Protestant Reformation. Because the Reformers also suffered excommunication for the sake of the gospel. In fact, Calvin took comfort from this very passage. He said, we have no reason to be greatly alarmed at the Pope's excommunications, with which he thunders against us on account of our testimony of the gospel. For we ought not to fear that they will do to us any more injury than those ancient excommunications which were made against the apostles. On the contrary, nothing is more desirable than to be driven out of that assembly from which Christ himself has been banished. They were put to death. Nearly all of the men in that room suffered martyrdom. Uh, How horrifying, murder in the service of God. How such blindness could be avoided. Uh, How such blindness must be avoided at, at all costs. We need to pray for discernment ourselves. Um, this prediction that Jesus made is confirmed in some of the sayings of the rabbis that heretics, slaying heretics, could be an act of divine worship. And so we have this ominous uh, warning from Donald Carson in his commentary. Christians have often discovered that the most dangerous oppression comes not from careless pagans, but rather from zealous adherence to religious faith and other ideologies. During the Reformation, a sermon was preached when Cramner was being burned at the stake. Christians have faced severe persecution, performed in the name of Yahweh, in the name of Allah, in the name of Marx, and yes, even in the name of Jesus. That's a very sobering uh, reality. Um, the, uh, and it makes us all the more ready to want to hear what help, what remedy for us in, is there in such circumstance. But the point is, um, and this comes back to where we began, um, that uh, though the same inclination dividing these two seeds, one that is of the world and wants to absolutize anything but the true God, and the other that's of God and is prepared to absolutize only God and his will, that those fundamental dispositions, um, there are other forces at work for example, fallen people people are capable of outwardly, through enculturation, adopting habits and patterns of virtuous behavior. That's part of the capacity of human nature. And of course, it's a good thing. That's what every parent is trying to do with their children. They can't ch- change their children's hearts but they know that the child has the capacity to be molded by habit into virtuous practices. That's why frustrated parents send their children off to serve in the military, because they know by long experience that sometimes severe discipline nevertheless can create patterns of outward virtue. And so where that's going on in the culture, that means it's going to lessen a person who's inwardly disciplined uh, tends to be inwardly disciplined across the board. And so their lusts, their hatreds, for a variety of reasons, are held in check. And so too, the uh, anger against God and his people is held in check. So too, there can be circumstances where the church can be so little like Christ and so much like the world, that it doesn't provoke the expression of that inward disposition. And that can be another reason why, that in a given culture, given time and place, we don't see the kind of full outbreak that we see in the early apostolic community. In other words, the church is so relatively fruitless 
there's nothing to arouse the opposition of the evil one. Um, and where Christianity has prevailed for a time, a third circumstance can be where the world culturally can be very much like the church. That is, uh, for a time, the outward forms of a culture that has taken up Christian virtues and values. The shell can go on long after the inner life is dead. And that also can lead to times when uh, the violence of this conflict. But the point is, these are only uh, a matter of hiatus. It, it will come to an end and um, the church either will be revived or it, uh, the um, ire will be aroused against their fruit. So that was meant to address a couple of things that we've been talking about. Um, so we had, uh, let's see, Kate and um, Ellie, Ellie and uh, Jen. Does that, I thought some of that might address what you all were talking about. So let me stop there and see if it did. <laughs> uh, yes, it, it does. Um, because I was thinking of our day and age where the church seems to be greatly divided because of political alliances that ha that um, ha however you say that have been equated with being a Christian. Right. And fundamentalists, um, I won't call them evangelicals because of that confusing term, but um, I've heard of some of those close to me that if they aren't in a line politically, they don't, these people who say they're Christians don't think this friend is a Christian because of a political alliance or non-political alliance or other things that are going on in the public square. It's, it certainly can get confusing. Yes. All right. Are you going to... Anyway, okay, go ahead. Um, Dave, you said um, a few minutes ago, if the church, something to be effective, if, if the church is fruitless, then that will not arouse any opposition. There you speak the illustration that is, is the church as, as, a, as a community. What about individual believers? Um, how, should, um, how should a person like me, all seems to be going well in my life. I have no complaints. I am happy, I am healthy, I have a job, I am very happy to be part of uh, the New Hope Church community. Um, uh, and, and so coming a little back to my earlier question, the op what opposition should I expect? And if I, if I don't see any opposition, what conclusions do I draw from yes. that? How, how fruitless am I? <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, remember I said there were cultural contexts where uh, what otherwise would have provoked ire doesn't have the occasion for being expressed. And I think e even now, we still in this country are in a cultural context where our institutions, the structures of our uh, societies and habits are, are still deeply influenced by Christian virtues and Christian values. Um, the... Um, uh, it's rapidly eroding, but in the main, everybody would look askance if I said to a checker, you stupid person, why didn't you get my change right? Everybody would be horrified by that. And the, the reason for that is because there is still the hangover of the Christian sensibility that every person's created in the image of God and have, has a right 
to dignified and charitable treatment. Uh, whereas there are countries where you can go to a market and you can have somebody screaming at the top of their lungs at you um, if there's some perceived slight. So I, I do think we still live in a context, but I, I do believe it's rapidly eroding, where it isn't a sign of our fruitlessness, but rather it is a sign that God has graciously allowed us to live in a place where uh, we didn't create this context, and we may be part of allowing it to be swept away, but we still are the beneficiaries of it. Does that make sense? It does. Thank you, Dave. It does. And Kate, did I get to anything that you were trying to get at? I don't think so, but that's okay. I can, I can live with it. <laughs> All right. Well. Uh, try again if there's an occasion you think you can get get it through my thick head what it is you're trying to ask me. <laughs> well, I'm sure it's my inept communication, but thank you. All right. Well, uh, so um, Jesus wants um, to help us to see the opposition uh, and seeing it for what it is, it's going to help us to be prepared to deal with it. Um, the... Um, and so at the bottom of page 129, he says, I want you to see the reality of this situation. But to do so, you're going to need new lenses. That's the imagery that um, Dr. Ferguson has. And I, I love the way he illustrates. It's one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. Uh, Elisha and his servant are there. They go out and they see they're surrounded by armies. The servant is utterly flummoxed. And... Um, he is about to come unglued, and the um, the prophet says, "Don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them." And the guy must have looked up at him. Elijah, you've been in, into the uh, Passover wine, or what? What? What's the deal here? And you have this lovely prayer. Uh, Elisha, open his eyes so that he can see. And the Lord opened his eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around. Just astonishing. It's an important point, um, more generally, before I bring it back to our cause, that the discernment of the invisible world doesn't belong to us of itself. It has to be a gift of supernatural empowering. That's what this story so remarkably communicates. And so we shouldn't expect to ever have any entree into that world. The, the gifts of supernatural discernment are no longer available in the church. Even in a day when it was, they weren't regularly given out. This servant was given a choice opportunity. Uh, but that we need to know that about that world. We don't have any proper entree into it except by a special gifting. But the point is, once the servant's eyes were opened, he realized that the resources uh, in favor of God and his cause were beyond any mere this worldly army. And so he was emboldened to faithfulness. Um, the, um, and, and thus... Uh, Believers need to be firmly persuaded of the greatness of God and our Lord Jesus Christ and his authority in his, in his kingdom that to build his church that, that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. And uh, it, it's this instruction that's going to um, cause the enemy to shrink in our eyes. Um, in other words, all of the efforts of the evil one do nothing but advance the cause of Christ. That seems to be powerfully exemplified in uh, 2 Corinthians 12 at verse 7. So I've been practicing here. I've gotten very high tech, so I want to see if this works. 
Um, I'm going to, uh, I want to read a longish quote to you from Jonathan Edwards. Um, and uh, there it is. And I thought if I put it on the screen, you could follow along. Can you all read that? I can. All right. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, um, throughout his life, kept notebooks that he called his miscellanies. Uh, They were first lettered through the alphabet, and then they started to be numbered. Uh, There were... uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. They've been published finally in the works of Jonathan Edwards. This is an early miscellany. He would just have some subject that he wanted to reflect upon and write his thoughts down. And this is one that uh, from the first time I ever read it, I've just been captivated by it. So, uh, devil, to give a sense. So he's gone uh, A through B, AA through, I mean, A through Z and AA through ZZ. And now we're in Arabic numbering, so you can see it's pretty early in the sequence. Seeing the devil is so cunning and subtle, it may seem a paradox why he will endeavor to frustrate the designs of an omniscient being, or to pretend to counterwork him that is omnipotent, and will not suffer anything but for his own glory seeing that God turns everything he does to the greater and more illustrious advancement of his own honor. And seeing, and seeing he has experience of it for so long a time that all his deep-laid contrivances have at last come down to his own overthrow, and the event has become directly contrary to what the devil designed. To this I say, that although the devil be exceedingly crafty and subtle, yet he is one of the greatest fools and blockheads in the world. The devil acts not according to his deliberate judgment, but is driven on to his own inexpressible torment by the fury of sin, malice, revenge, and pride, and is so entirely under the government of malice that although he never attempted anything against God, but what was disappointed, yet he cannot bear to lie still and refrain from exerting himself with all his might and subtlety against the interests of holiness. Though he, if he considered, might know that his efforts will turn to its, always turn to holiness's advantage. <laughs> a, a remarkable. Um, I have this available. I can put in the chat if any of you would like it. Um, and uh, but uh, I just thought that was a stunning statement of the matter, and one that was hugely encouraging. No, I don't seem to. Uh, Steve or Molly, while I'm playing with this thing. I was just clapping. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> um, I, I love that phrasing, that he's one of the greatest blockheads in the world. Huh, I wonder if it's too big for the chat. Do you know if there's a limit? I just used my camera to take a picture of it. <laughs> You can send it in an email? I could. Yeah, I could do that. I put larger things in a chat before, but I bet that's what it is. There must be some limit. Well, all right. Um, let's see. Oh, dear. Uh, <laughs> I'm running out of time. I haven't even got us to the first principles yet. Um, hold on a second. Let's go there. We're at uh, page 131. In some ways, I think we can summarize this uh, pretty quickly in the time we have left. Um, We need to think about our lives in first principles. That's what Dr. Ferguson is urging upon us. There are three of them in view with respect to helping us understand how to face the, 
the onslaught of uh, the invisible world. First of all, this. He tells them that uh, those who are persecuting don't know the Father, but they do know the Father, and that just makes all the difference. Um, Opposition, intimidation makes me feel small, but I have a great privilege. I'm the child of a heavenly father. And he quotes several passages that have to do with God's care for even the smallest in his kingdom and the, quotes the beautiful language of Heidelberg Catechism I, um, who is my comfort in life and death, uh, a beautiful saying um, concerning how I belong to Christ uh, and his heavenly father that uh, I'm delivered from the tyranny of the devil and not a hair can fall on from my head without my father's care in the matter. I could not be uh, more secure at the bottom of 131 and uh, on to 132, the beautiful sentence. Um, the Those antagonistic to my faith are powerless to do anything to me that my father is not able to use for my ultimate good. Um, that is a grand and simple truth. That's the kind of care that we have from our Heavenly Father. He illustrates it by the great story of the, the boy who has a great soccer player from a father and always goes for the other side and the, he never fails to prevail. And of course... Um, the father of infinite majesty has promised uh, that in the text from Isaiah 54 quoted, no weapon that's fashioned against you, against you shall succeed. So that's the first principle. We're a child. We're in the family of a father who absolutely has the resources, the wisdom, and will never fail to care for his children. The second principle is the judgment of God. That is, uh, that um, uh, any person who seeks to do harm to Christ's church will finally uh, sit before the judgment seat of Christ, uh, a terrifying prospect. Um, he cites um, the saying of Jesus there, that if he had not come and spoke to, spoken to them, it, that is his opponents, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Um, I just note in passing, that term in the Greek language uh, should more properly um, be interpreted pretext. They have no pretext for their sin. The word excuse suggests that, at least possible, that it had some mitigating element. Pretext is you're, you, you don't even have anything that could conceivably be mitigating. It's all false. That, that's the way it's translated in, in every other place it appears in the New Testament. And I think it was a mistake for the translators to use the word excuse there. But for what that little point is worth, um, uh, the, uh, in, in the Old Testament, uh, there's a place where someone is marveling at the wickedness of uh, what someone has just done, and they just blurt out with astonishment, do you not fear God? And anyone who knows what the righteous judgment of God is going to mean for those who are in rebellion against him and unrepentant, uh, it's, a, it's a terrifying prospect. Um, the... Um, and so, uh, in the middle of page 133, Dr. Ferguson nicely points out that the shining of Christ has the same effect spiritually on the disciples that bear good fruit and on the hearts of others who are hardened in their hostility against God. This surely picks up on what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. Uh, about the apostolic preaching. He says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance of death to death. To the other, a fragrance of life uh, to life. We must all appear 
before the judgment seat of Christ. And here's the point, last paragraph on 133. Disciples need to learn to view their present experience in light of the future. To view their present experience in light of the future. And in that lovely passage in 2 Corinthians 4, uh, 16 to 15, that's the whole argument of Paul. We don't lose heart in this world because the light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. So I, I learned to see things for what they are in light of where things will be when Christ returns. The complete vindication of his people and the complete uh, and just judgment against those who have opposed his kingdom. That vision of the future apparently was given to Stephen as he was being stoned to death. What a bloody and terrible way of killing a person. And yet, beholding Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, uh, he was enabled uh, to say, forgive them. Um, That's an extraordinary point. And one that we should hope that what God would give us grace uh, to do as well. The last the principle is unsurprised. Um, we are uh, uh, often thrown out of kilter by something that comes against us un, uh, uh, un, unusually in a, sh- a shocking fashion. Um, but here, the, the point is we're not sent into a panic be- because we're not surprised that it's come. It hasn't thrown our Lord into a panic. He forewarned us that it would come. Um, In fact, at the end of the day, it's Christ's opponents who are going to be overtaken by a terrible surprise. So terrible that when Christ talks about it, he, he speaks of those who are calling for the mountains to fall down upon their own heads. Um, So, um, Here, uh, again, we're able to pray against such folk. Lord, don't hold them. Don't hold this sin against them. Well, the final point is witness. Um, The the closing words, Christ goes on to talk about the parakletos, the helper who he's sending, the helper whose work... um, parallels perfectly the work that he's given his disciples to do. Uh, He's going to come and help them bear witness in the face of all this opposition. Um, And he's going to make their witness effective. And so on page 137, you see the parallelism uh, set out in those two sections between the apostles and the Holy Spirit. There's this wonderful conjunction, uh, this uh, spirit who has been sent who proceeds from the Father, and that leads um, uh, Dr. Ferguson into a wonderful discussion of the mystery of the Trinity. Uh, And so here he's bringing this, what some people think is a a speculative and uh, completely impractical doctrine. Dr. Ferguson's bringing it to bear on one of the most intense and practical experiences that believers have in this world that's in opposition. Um, that the, the, spirit, the Spirit of God who eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son is the one who is the resource uh, for believers in this time of crisis. He is an anchor. Uh, Dr. Ferguson puts it at the bottom of 138, an anchor for his disciples in the very heart of the being of God. Uh, so um, when the helper comes they will have resources of heaven anchored in the trinity itself before that all human opposition shrinks uh, and we ought to give thanks for such a privilege Um, and um, at the concluding portion he says in addition 
this was a promise to the apostles that they'd been enabled by the Spirit to provide for the church in every age, their ultimate witness to Christ, the New Testament. Here supremely is the joint witness of the apostles and the Holy Spirit, and we have been blessed wonderfully to have that gift as our own, and which enables us to participate in this extraordinary history. Well, overall questions about what we've talked about tonight, uh, or even specific ones. We don't have much time. In fact, anybody who needs to, I hate to hold you longer, but uh, anybody who needs to, feel free to leave. But if anybody does have a question, I'd be glad for, uh, I'll be glad to stay on for a little bit and try and answer them. Kate, did I ever get to what you were talking about? No. No. <laughs> okay. That's okay. I'll try to think of a better way to say it. All right. Super. Anyone else? Question? Comment? Reflection? Yes, I have a question. Yes. Um, are we ever persecuted personally without a person persecuting us? Like when we're just thinking about things or reading scripture, is Satan at work persecuting us? Uh, the, we don't know a lot about um, such things, but we do know that Satan is an accuser. And uh, we do know that... Um, I, I don't think Satan can possess anyone any longer. Uh, but the language is sometimes used that we are spiritually oppressed. Uh, the point is that that is some kind of an outward influence. We don't know how it works. But nevertheless, it, it's not within you. It's coming from without you. But uh, it can be a form of assault uh, with respect to your conscience or with respect to uh, confusions you have about different things that Scripture teaches. Um, so, and, and you, you see that against that is not some incantation or talking to Satan, but it's the whole armor of God that is given to us in Ephesians. And the whole armor of God is all uh, the regular use of the means of grace, um, faith and hope and love the word and prayer. And so the way we engage in that battle is by holding on to those things and using them uh, effectively and fruitfully. Does that address? Yeah. I think we can have low ebbs or suddenly that can certainly affect us. Yes. Um, but also reading scripture and then having, you know, I think it's, yeah, it's Luther who said about the, you know, the birds can, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your, whatever. <laughs> in your hair, right. Uh, in your hair. Yes. So, um, odd thoughts come, you know, you're reading and you're being, uh, you know, agreeing, and then all of a sudden it's like, you don't really believe that, do you? <laughs> You know, and right. Then right. we have to look it up, you know, and then you go, oh, I didn't even understand that verse, and now I do. Yeah. That, things like that. Yeah. That's what I was thinking about. Not that I believe that the devil or can inhabit me, or, but those, and I was wondering if that is seen as persecution. I think so, yes. I think it'd be part oh. of the way in which the world system hates believers and uh, uh, th there's an attempt to assault them. Okay, thanks. Great, great question. Well, thank you all again for coming um, and uh, let me close this with prayer. Father, we are uh, grateful for your kindness to um, help us to understand these deep things. We thank you for Jesus's uh, powerful ministry to his apostles. Uh, 
that did in fact prepare them to face incredible opposition with courage and in the midst of that opposition to be extraordinarily fruitful, to be those who turned the world right side up and who were a blessing to hundreds and hundreds of people in the formation of new communities, outposts from heaven uh, in this world. And that that work as the word uh, became a permanent possession then was carried on from generation to generation that the seed of the woman is still triumphing over uh, the seed of the serpent and that the kingdom uh, is uh, making its way forward. We pray that we would live in bright hope for that to continue to happen, that we would ever pray Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.